This yes. is hell. The planet's on fire, so yes, this is hell, and the part of the planet's that's on fire, which we will be discussing this morning, is primarily in the southeastern part of the United States as well as Texas, but it stretches all the way north to places like Delaware and is really all across the United States. What they are on fire with is cumulative emissions from chemical processing facilities, which are together being linked to cancer. A ProPublica investigation last month found that the combined effects of chemical plants can lead to what are known as cancer alleys, especially in Texas and Louisiana, that have made nearby communities and neighborhoods sacrifice zones where residents are far more likely to contract and die from various cancers. As the journalists at ProPublica discovered, ethylene oxide is the biggest contributor to excess industrial cancer risk from air pollutants nationwide. Corporations across the United States, but especially in Texas and Louisiana, manufacture the colorless, odorless gas which lingers in the air for months and is highly mutagenic, meaning it can alter DNA. In other words, ethylene oxide is a highly toxic chemical that can lead to lymphoma and breast cancer. According to the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, ethylene oxide is produced in large volumes and is primarily used as an intermediate in the production of several industrial chemicals, the most notable of which is ethylene glycol. It is also used as a fumigant in certain agricultural products and as a sterilant for medical equipment and supplies. And according to the Centers for Disease Control, ethylene glycol is a useful industrial compound found in many consumer products. Examples include antifreeze, hydraulic brake fluids, some stamp pad inks, ballpoint pens, solvents, paints, plastics, uh, films, and cosmetics, which means the chemical industry depends upon it. And it's in items we use around our homes and in our offices every day. If you are a regular listener of This Is Hell, this may sound somewhat familiar as we have been discussing Cancer Alley in Louisiana since back in May 2017 in conversations we've had with The Intercept's Sharon Lerner. But that makes but what makes ProPublica's investigation unique is this time the EPA may actually be doing something about it. At least this time, the EPA sent out an administrator to take a tour of an area in Louisiana where multiple facil- facilities seem to be combining to have deleterious effects on residents in nearby neighborhoods. We'll learn why the EPA has allowed this poisoning to go on for so long and what can be done about it in a few minutes when we speak with Ava Kaufman, co-author of Poison in the Air. The EPA allows polluters to turn neighborhoods into sacrifice zones where residents breathe carcinogens. ProPublica reveals where these places are in a first-of-its-kind map and data analysis. Ava's co-authors include Lila Yunus, Al Shaw and Lisa Song, with additional reporting by Maya Miller and photography by Kathleen Flynn. Ava reports on technology for ProPublica. She joined ProPublica in January of 2019 after working as a contributing reporter at The Intercept, where she covered algorithms, artificial intelligence, and surveillance technology. Her work has also appeared in the New York Times Magazine, Harper's Magazine, The Atlantic, The Guardian, and The New Republic, among other publications. Ava has also been an editor of The New Inquiry and on the editorial staff of Harper's Magazine. You can follow Ava on Twitter at Ava Kaufman. That's A-V-A-K-O. O-F-M-A-N. You can find out more about Ava at avacoffman.tumblr.com. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. 
It's Tuesday, so producing, I guess, is Alex Jerry. Alex, how was your extended weekend? Anything new by you? Yeah, I've been reading Joshua Slocum's 1900 book, Sailing Alone Around the World. Okay. Which he recounts. He was the first person to sail alone around the world, which is why he got to that book title. And let me just read you one sentence from his Wikipedia article that might be interesting to you. He sailed single-handedly around the world. Crazy. In 1900. Yes. Crazy. Despite being an experienced mariner, Slocum never learned to swim and considered learning to swim to be useless. Uh, do you know what section that's from? What's wrong? Uh, disappearance. <laughs> Maybe that's why he was able to go around the world. He was so motivated uh, to stay afloat by the fact that he could not swim. That would be a motivating factor. So my bronchitis is not clearing up as quickly as I had hoped. And as we just celebrated a holiday, I apparently needed an extra day of recuperation from all the celebrating during this time of year. Don't forget, during the final two weeks of 2021, we will be playing your 10 favorite shows or interviews of the year. So throughout the holidays, you will not miss This Is Hell. You'll be able to enjoy enjoy the very best of This Is Hell from this year. Send us your suggestions via email at chuckatthisishell.com. Message them to us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Or tweet them to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. And if we play your suggested favorite, we'll thank you personally during our best of 2021 shows. But more importantly than my bronchitis, my recuperating from the last holiday, or even our best of shows, or the fact that it looks like you're back has gone out while my stomach has gone out and my lungs have gone out alex what's this week's question from hell for our listening audience this week's question from hell is what did the oracle just reveal to you what did the oracle just reveal to you (laughs) the person the an actual oracle not the you know software the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever this is how swag you want the this is hell t-shirts tote bags the face covering or the face mask the coffee mug the this is hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s the trucker's cap the winter beanie or toque if you prefer you can check them all out right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without not, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for su- your support. And do not forget, if you become a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash thisishellradio, you get a $5 discount on all of our merchandise. Thanks this week goes out to Dylan in Oloth, Kansas who got an enamel This Is Hell camping coffee mug, and thanks to Zachary in Seattle, who picked up the This Is Hell lined winter beanie, or toque if you prefer. Thanks, Dylan in Olaf, Kansas, and thanks, Zachary in Seattle. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio, or you can email it to Chuck at This Is Hell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. Alex will be sharing some of your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with Ava Kaufman. Again, the question from hell is What did the Oracle just reveal to you? What did the Oracle just reveal to you? Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell. And Alex has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is the ultimate hangover cure. Well, I guess we're done. Uh, the website Whales Online posted a story earlier today with the headline, Experts Create the Ultimate Hangover Cure Sandwich Because Christmas May Leave You Feeling a Bit Off in the Morning. The article reports... 
reports. <laughs> With office Christmas parties making a comeback this year, the next few weeks we'll see some festive fun and frolics of fellow ooh, colleagues letting loose at this year's workplace shindig. Experts have now crafted what they say is the ultimate hangover cure, a fish finger sandwich. Don't trust any sent- any article that has the word shindig in it. I'd strongly suggest you do that. That amount of alliteration was kind of nuts. <laughs> yeah. too. Uh, to make a fish finger sandwich, pat dry three breaded codloin fish fingers. Set up three separate containers, one with seasoned flour, one with beaten egg and milk, and one with ponk. I thought they were already breaded cod loin fish fingers. Okay. Whales online. Uh, with dill mixed through it. Breadcrumb the fish fingers by dusting them in seasoned flour. Dip in egg wash, coating with panko. Deep fry the fish fingers in hot oil for four to five minutes until golden brown, ensuring the fish is thoroughly cooked through to an, temperature, to an internal core temperature of 160, which is high for fish. Uh, set aside and keep warm. Butter each slice of white bloomer bread on one side each. Assemble the sandwich by placing the cod loin fish fingers in a single layer on one slice of buttered bread. Hmm. That makes this week's hangover cure the ultimate hangover cure, a fish finger sandwich. Yeah, the uh, recipe is a little bit wanting there. It leaves you a little bit wanting. I, it didn't really quite make sense to me either. But the important part is it's a fish finger sandwich from Wales. Putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. This is hell. And if you would like to support our horrible business model that puts you before profits, subscribe to our weekly bonus podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell, which streams live at 10 a.m. on Fridays. This podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell shortly after. And we will be continuing to do Patreon podcasts. During the two weeks we're taking off, and we will be playing best of shows, the final two weeks of 2021. On our most recent Patreon podcast, I did my very best to answer a question listener Sam sent to us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Sam asked, what anesthetizes you against the terror of existence in the post-industrial climate emergency, neo-feudal, billionaire playground, meat grinder economy? The problem, as I explained on Patreon this past Friday, is that I've been told not to do any of the things I usually do to anesthetize myself because of not only my bronchitis, but now a flare-up of my chronic stomach ailment, diverticulitis, which I know is actually an issue within my colon, but discussing a colon issue this early in the morning is even more disgusting than talking about a stomach problem. So when I do not have access to my regular choices of anesthesia, I actually have a somewhat clear-minded, sober, if you will, view of how I do dull all the self-induced pain I put myself through every week by contemplating, facing, and even challenging the hell that we live in. We also shared a classic interview that is currently unavailable online other than on Patreon, and that interview was supposed to be a 2008 talk with Alex DeWall on what was taking place in Chad because we had just had a conversation with Magdi El-Jazuli last week on neighboring Sudan, so we thought it would be a good time to hear what guests were saying about the region some 13 years ago. Unfortunately, our archives are not complete, and that interview was not complete either. We only had a few minutes of it. So instead, and motivated by our conversation last week with Farmer C.E. on worker-owned farming, we shared a 2003 discussion with Wendy Walford, co-author of the just-posted Food First Report, now it is time, the MST and grassroots land reform in Brazil. Wendy is also co-author of the Food First book, To Inherit the Earth, the Landless Movement, and the Struggle for a New Brazil. Wendy describes how the MST, Brazil's Landless People's Movement, had secured more than 20 million acres of farmland from wealthy landowners who had never seen or stepped foot on the land. They simply claimed rights to land, claims that the landless were never able to make themselves claims they were not allowed to dispute, but you can only hear how I anesthetize myself against 
the terror of existence in the post-industrial climate emergency, neo-feudal billionaire playground meat grinder economy, and a 2003 conversation on Brazil's landless workers movement by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell, where you will get every week a new monologue from me, a classic interview from our 25-plus year archive, as well as a $5 discount on all of our merchandise. Coming up, neighbors living in Cancer Alley near chemical produce processing plants. We will also have this week in Rotten History some of your answers to this week's question, pal, which is, what did the Oracle just reveal to you? What did the Oracle just reveal to you? We'll also tell you about an opportunity where you, too, can become a crew member here on This Is Hell. And we have yet another person who, is, who wants to be a board op. Behind every great fortune lies a great crime because this is hell. A new investigation reveals the cumulative effect of chemical processing facilities on neighbors in nearby communities, neighborhoods that are often disproportionately poor and African-American, and the results are frightening. Here to help us understand what life and death is like in cancer alleys across the United States. Ava Kaufman, co-author of Poison in the Air. The EPA allows polluters to turn neighborhoods into sacrifice zones where residents breathe carcinogens. Welcome to This Is Hell, Ava. Thanks so much for having me. Ava reports on technology for ProPublica. And uh, she is also, uh, you can follow her on Twitter at Ava Kaufman, K-O-F-M-A-N. And you can find out more about Ava at avakaufman.tumblr.com. So you start by writing from the, uh, well, let me actually get to the part that, my question. You write ProPublica undertook an analysis that has never been done before. Using advanced data processing software and a modeling tool developed by the EPA, we mapped the spread of cancer-causing chemicals from thousands of sources of hazardous air pollution uh, across the United States between 2014 and 2018. The result is an unparalleled view of how toxic air blooms around uh, industrial facilities and spreads into nearby neighborhoods, a modeling tool that's developed by the EPA. If the agency had created a modeling tool, why hadn't they used it in determining what was causing cancer in Cancer Alley? So the agency has you know, many different tools that it uses to map industrial air pollution. And of course, it's, it's no secret that industrial facilities you know, emit hazardous air pollution. So we don't want to you know, make this sound like we're the, we're the first people you know, ever, ever to reveal um, that cancerous chemicals might be coming out of smokestacks. But what the agency doesn't do is it doesn't look at a kind of block by block level to add up just how much that cancer risk for someone who's living at the fence line, who's living really close to industry and is most likely to be affected by breathing those chemicals in, um, the agency doesn't really look at how that risk is adding up in an area. And so our first of a kind analysis uh, took all of the different facilities that might be you know, in a, in a neighborhood that's heavily industrialized, uh, like the so-called Cancer Alley, like Houston, like Newcastle, Delaware, and said, instead of looking at just one facility at a time and pretending that people can pick and choose the air they're breathing in from these facilities, we're going to add up the cancer risk from these clusters of industrial facilities to give people a fuller picture, certainly not the fullest picture, but a much fuller picture of the estimated risks that they might be exposed to. 
And as I was saying earlier, your analysis found that ethylene oxide is the biggest contributor to excess industrial cancer risk from air pollutants nationwide. And as I was pointing out, from sterilizing medical equipment to all of the products the CDC states that uses ethylene glycol, a product of ethylene oxide, which uh, ethylene oxide uh, creates, is the choice. Either some people get cancer or we don't have sterile medical equipment, car engines that don't freeze, hydraulic brakes, and certain kinds of ballpoint pens, solvents, paints, plastics, films, and cosmetics. Can, can consumer activism affect the production of cancer-causing ethylene oxide? Can we simply just stop using the products that ethylene oxide creates? That's a really good question. Um, and that's something I think some of my colleagues are actually planning to get into um, very shortly. So definitely stay tuned for that story. What's really tricky, as you're pointing out, is that ethylene oxide and its uh, you know subsequent byproducts are incredibly ubiquitous in the American supply chain. And they're wrapped up in uh, all sorts of, of products from you know medical equipment, things that are highly specialized uh, like that, to household products uh, like uh, soaps and detergents and shampoos. Um, so uh, it, I, I, it, it's, it, it's a really, really tricky answer. I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> Can those products be produced in a more clean way, or is that what the other uh, journalists are looking into at this point? In some cases, they definitely can. And um, the argument has been made that when it comes to uh, the use of ethylene oxide for, for sterilizing medical equipment, there's only um, a few devices that you would really need to use it for. There are substitutes available um, for most of its other uses, um, at least in the medical sector, uh, that, that one could swap in. And there's only one or two things where you would kind of want that I guess, ethylene oxide level of, of sterilization. So um, yes, in some cases, uh, it, it could be phased out of, of the supply chain um, and, the, and the chemical chain of commerce. And in others, I think, I think it's really entangled and, and might be a little trickier. You write that in, you and your colleagues write that in all ProPublica identified more than a thousand hot spots of cancer causing air. They are not equally distributed across the country. A quarter of the 20 hot spots with the highest levels of excess risk are in Texas, and almost all of them are in southern states known for having weaker environmental regulations. So, are voters in Texas and other southern states prioritizing jobs over protecting themselves against cancer, or are those who are affected by cancer? not those who benefit from jobs in the chemical sector. It doesn't really always add up that um, when a plant comes to your neighborhood, you'll necessarily get work. We heard from a lot of people on the ground who said, you know, they promised that there would be jobs here, um, but no one we know has gotten hired. Um, I'm thinking of folks we talked to in Mossville, Louisiana, which is a small, unincorporated, historically black community uh, near Cancer Alley, though not technically in it. Um, just kind of right on the border between Texas and Louisiana. And the people there are surrounded by, the people who remain there uh, who haven't yet moved out are surrounded by you know, nearly 14 uh, different kind of chemical plants and facilities. And uh, some of them you know, work, work you know, good jobs for, for good money at, at some of these places. Um, but a lot of them have you know, even felt left behind by that industrial growth. So uh, it doesn't always follow that there's some sort of, um, you know, magical formula between, you know, 
jobs versus uh, polluting the environment, that dichotomy we found is, is, is often quite false. You write that after reviewing ProPublica's map, Wayne Davis, an environmental scientist formerly with the EPA's Office of Chemical Safety and Pollution Prevention, said the public is going to learn that EPA allows a hell of a lot of pollution to occur that the public does not think is occurring. Why do you think the public does not think that is occurring? How good of a job does the EPA do in selling to us, the public, that they are monitoring uh, for any kinds of chemical emissions that may be causing any kind of health risk, whether that's cancer or any disease? Yeah, there are a couple couple ways of answering that question. I mean, I think that part of the reason the public doesn't know that all of this is occurring is that the data is kind of wrapped up in a in an inventory called the Toxics Release Inventory. It's a you know, landmark transparency initiative that it's not impossible to use, but it's pretty difficult for the average user to use. And when I go to the TRR website, and let's say I wanted to look at you know, chemicals in my neighborhood, it would just show me the amount of chemicals that are released um, in raw pounds, which doesn't necessarily translate to how toxic that chemical actually is. And so what we did is use this kind of screening um, modeling tool that was also developed by the EPA that actually allows you to compare, you know, what's a pound of formaldehyde or, you know, uh, formaldehyde or ethylene oxide, um, to use an example of a chemical we were just talking about, compared to a pound of benzene, you know, which one is actually more, more toxic, and to then weight the chemical emissions to understand just how much kind of toxic pollution uh, is in the air. And to really kind of understand that, um, you know, looking at a map uh, that actually models uh, the potential dispersions and takes weather into account um, is going to allow you to see just how much pollution is occurring in a way that maybe looking at a spreadsheet where all of the different emissions are you know, segregated from each other and not even added up together uh, won't really allow you to do. So that's one of the reasons. Another reason is that a lot of these chemicals are odorless and uh, colorless. And so you might be living right next to a plant uh, and have kind of no idea what's coming out of the smokestack because, uh, uh, you know, again, to go to the example of ethylene oxide, um, uh, there's basically no indicators, right, in the air. Um, nothing's changing. It's, a, it's an invisible killer, as, as they say. You write that ProPublica's reporting exposes flaws with the EPA's implementation of the Clean Air Act, a landmark law that dramatically reduced air pollution across America, but provided less protection to those who live closest to industrial polluters. So is this a matter, when it comes to the Clean Air Act, is this a matter of oversight without enforcement? Because this has come up uh, on the show repeatedly. Most recently, when we spoke with Michael Barajas, co-author of the Texas Observer investigation, locked up and left to die in Texas, dying in jail as par for the course. When it relates to oversight of Texas's county jails, their medical care and abuse by guards and other staff members. Is the issue with the EPA that it does oversight, but it does not then engage in enforcement? That's definitely one of the issues, but another issue is just also how the Clean Air Act was originally written. Um, so it's not just, I mean, in, there are many places in which we're implementing the Clean Air Act and there are still major pollution problems. And that's because a lot of this pollution, especially what we found in our analysis, it is perfectly legal. Um, it's legal under the Clean Air Act. And what we're seeing in these places is actually, you know, the longstanding codification of um, industrial practice, of business as usual. And that's because if you go back to the Clean Air Act, they basically took 
six chemicals that were incredibly ubiquitous and certainly needed to be regulated, um, like smog um, and sulfur dioxide and you know, particulate matter, um, ozone, and uh, set strict limits for those that were based on uh, health standards. And if you exceed those, those limits, um, you're no longer seen as being in attainment and there are actual penalties. But for all of these other cancer-causing chemicals, which are the ones that we focused on in our analysis, since they're often kind of left behind, the EPA didn't quite pay them as much attention and instead told facilities, uh, you should install equipment to reduce your pollution, um, you know, pollution control equipment, uh, putting stuff on smokestacks, uh, uh, various filters and so on. And then the EPA eventually will come back to you and study your remaining emissions to see if they pose uh, an unacceptable health risk. And in many cases, it took dozens, uh, it took you know, 12 years, um, sometimes longer for the EPA to even come back to these facilities and study the kind of remaining health risk. And even when it does study it, it often says that the health risk is, is negligible. And so we have this kind of entire class of, of chemicals that haven't been strictly regulated. And that in, in many cases is what's leading to kind of um, these massive hotspots of, of cancer causing air. And you write of the Clean Air Act, the 1970 law resulted in outdoor air quality standards for a handful of widespread criteria pollutants, including sulfur dioxide and particulate matter, which could be traced to exhaust pipes and smokestacks all over the country and were proven to aggravate asthma and lead to early deaths, but 187 other dangerous chemicals now known as hazardous, air pollutants or, or air toxics never got the level of attention. Are the other 187 dangerous chemicals not as regulated more because the science was not there yet in 1970 or because the chemical lobby was there? Are people getting cancer because of a lack of scientific evidence at the outset of the, EP, of, the outset of the Clean Air Act or an abundance of industry lobbying? I think at first, um our impression is that there, it, it, it did partly have to do with the science. It takes a long time to kind of develop and, and prove, um, especially something like cancer risk. Um, the health studies are, you know, need to be uh, extensive. And it was hard to even measure some of these compounds. Um, we didn't, not only did we not necessarily have the science to uh, link chemicals to cancer risks in terms of doing kind of long-term epidemiological studies, we also didn't even have the equipment or technology to be able to say, okay, th it's this much hexavalent chromium coming out of this smokestack, and we can disentangle it from these other volatile organic compounds. Um, that, that measurement equipment and technology was you know, quite expensive and not necessarily in wide use for every chemical. And so, yes, in those early stages, there was a kind of, you know, these were unknown unknowns issue. Um, but as time went on, uh, as you pointed out, uh, there have been instances of kind of aggressive industry lobbying and delays in terms of, you know, implementing or even developing um, appropriate risk standards around some of these chemicals. Uh, you mentioned the work of, you know, Sharon Lerner earlier, and she definitely has uh, <laughs> uncovered uh, time and again interference um, from the chemical lobbying in developing uh, not just uh, rules and policies, but even kind of sound and appropriate science. So while a facility, as you, your investigation points out, while a facility may not be harmful on its own, when clustered together, these chemical processing facilities pose a greater risk. So is the solution simply 
not allowing the clustering of uh, chemical facilities? Is the problem just simply location and putting them all together in one area? I wouldn't say that. Um, I think there's two ways that a, that a location can be a hotspot. So one of them is, you know, you have a bunch of different facilities with risks that might be considered um, acceptable, let's say. Uh, I think even that's kind of arguable, actually. I would put an asterisk there because, you know, what the EPA defines as acceptable, many experts say it's too high. And uh, I think there's a, a strong case to be made, especially by the people who have to breathe this air that you know, no amount of cancer risk in a lot of ways is necessarily acceptable, um, or certainly uh, the cancer risk should be much, much, much lower. Um, but even just bracketing that, um, yes, you can get you know a bunch of facilities kind of driving up the risk in the area because one of them's contributing you know this much, another's contributing that much, and so on. But you can also just get a facility that's releasing a lot of a highly toxic chemical, which is why you know weighting these chemicals and really comparing um, the raw pounds. Uh, translating these raw pounds, excuse me, into, you know, actual cancer risks is so important because you, you get a, a facility like Sterogenics um, in near Chicago, Illinois, uh, that's releasing a ton of ethylene oxide into the air, you know, and that would just create its own, its own hotspot. So it's not just getting rid of clustering. Uh, when it comes to highly toxic chemicals, it's instituting um, strict and protective health limits uh, that advocates are, are calling for. And the investigation you co-authored also states the Clean Air Act rarely requires industry or the EPA to monitor for air toxics, leaving residents near these plants chronically uninformed about what they're breathing in. And when companies report their emissions to the EPA, they're allowed to estimate them using flawed formulas and monitoring methods. So does the Clean Air Act give the public the impression that air quality is being monitored and nothing more? Is that the outcome of maybe some sort of bipartisan consensus when it came to the Clean Air Act, that you're allowed to have an agency that does oversight, but not to have an agency or an act, but not to have an act that then it has any kind of enforcement within it? Well, there is enforcement. Uh, I think one of the the issues that, that people have been highlighting for a long time is that a lot of that enforcement is delegated to the states. And so you get... Uh, you know, like many systems in the US, a sort of um, patchwork uh, regulatory system where some states take those enforcement powers really seriously. Um, you know, industrial polluters in California um, have more violations uh, than in, you know, in some cases than uh, their counterparts or even, you know, facilities owned by the same company in a state like Texas. It's not necessarily because they're polluting more in California. It's that the laws are much stricter in California. And so they're caught up um, and, and enforced uh, in a different way, in a different regulatory system. And you point out that for many homes closest to the fence lines of petrochemical plants in cities like Laporte and Port Neches, Texas, the estimated excess risk of cancer ranges from three to six times the level the EPA considers acceptable. But because of the way that the EPA underestimates risk, the true dangers of living in a toxic hotspot are often invisible to regulators and residents alike. How difficult would it be to change the way the EPA estimates risk? Yeah, that's a great question. So according to many environmental advocates, uh, the EPA already kind of has, has the authority under the Clean Air Act to look at what we're calling, you know, cumulative risk, this idea that you can't just look at one facility or one type of facility at a time 
you have to look at all of the facilities in an area. Um, it's just kind of, you know, common sense and something the EPA has acknowledged um, in some of its own memos and studies over the years. Uh, the EPA has told us when we ask them, what are you going to do about cumulative risk? Um, that they wanna be very creative and entrepreneurial about this issue. Uh, that they do plan to uh, examine the authority that they that they have, um, which experts say they do, you know, already have, and to lean on Congress um, if if their team, if uh, you know, the current administration um, believes they might not have that authority um, to expand it in order to be able to, uh, you know, perform basic addition on on cancer risk in these areas. But as the investigation points out, our analysis comes at a critical juncture for the fate of America's air. After decades of improvement, air quality has, by some metrics, begun to decline. In the last four years, the Trump administration rolled back more than 100 environmental protections, including two dozen air pollution and emissions policies. So has the Biden administration worked to reinstitute regulations the Trump administration rolled back? It has in some cases, um, there are some things that Biden could do immediately, uh, that the Biden administration could do immediately that he hasn't yet done. So I think uh, the general mood is that, you know, Biden has um, committed and, and talked uh, and set, you know, really high expectations um, for his administration's, uh, you know, kind of full-throated efforts to address environmental justice. Uh, but we have not yet necessarily seen some of the changes that would protect people in frontline communities immediately from the dangerous exposure to pollution that they're facing. What do you think is the biggest obstacle to Biden rolling back some of those uh, regulate or uh, bringing back into law the regulations that Trump had rolled back? That's a really good question. Um, some people have suggested to me in the course of this reporting that it kind of has to do with bureaucratic um, slowness, uh, that it takes a lot to kind of um, turn a ship around, uh, to use a metaphor that uh, Administrator Michael Regan used uh, when describing his new role at, as you know the, the head of the EPA. Uh, we're speaking with Ava Kaufman, co-author of Poison in the Air. The EPA allows polluters to turn neighborhoods into sacrifice zones where residents breathe carcinogens. Ava reports on technology for ProPublica. You can follow Ava on Twitter at Ava Kaufman. That's A-V-A-K-O-F-M-A-N. And find out more about Ava at avakaufman.tumblr.com. I was really surprised at some of the quotes that you got from people, especially those who are at the EPA, you quote a Matthew Tejada, director of the EPA's Office of Environmental Justice, telling ProPublica that tackling hot spots of toxic air will require, quote, working back through 50 years of environmental regulation in the United States and unpacking and untying a whole series of knots. Then you quote Jane Williams, executive director of California Communities Against Toxics, saying these fence line communities are sacrifice zones. Before there was climate denial, there was cancer denial. We release millions of pounds of carcinogens into our air, water, and food and act mystified when people start getting sick. So how directly can we attribute facility emissions to cancers to members of nearby communities? Can those facilities argue that their emissions are one of many contributing factors? And have they made that argument? Yeah, definitely. This is what's so tricky about uh, air pollution in particular, is that it obviously all gets mixed up 
<laughs> in the air and it's a lot uh it's a lot less clean than being able to kind of you know measurement measure effluence or discharges um you know coming out of a specific pipe into the water um from a facility say or uh you know tracing something on land uh however there are ways of tracing what's coming out of facilities um you can monitor the fence line uh, right by the facility which will give you a pretty good indicator of uh, what's happening right where the facility is operating and what it's releasing. Um, you can do a stack test where you're actually measuring kind of what's coming out uh, of the smokestack directly um, during its normal uh, operations or industrial processes. And uh, there are clever ways of, uh, you know, maybe putting an ambient monitor um, somewhere in a town or neighborhood and looking at the direction of the wind um, and figuring out how those wind patterns kind of match which facilities the chemicals might be coming from, which is something um, that we've been made aware of that the EPA uh, has been trying to do it in, uh, internally. Uh, there's also a lot of testing and estimates that facilities are supposed to do themselves to kind of self-report data. And so, you know, our analysis is based on, on their own self-reported data on what they're emitting um, to the EPA. And uh, just going on uh, Tejada's quote again, he uh, Tejada's quote again. He says that our environmental regulatory system wasn't set up to deal with these things. All of the parts of this system have to be rethought to address hot spots or places where we know there's a disproportionate burden. Again, this is from somebody at the EPA. Is Tejada saying the only way to address these hot spots, these cancer alleys is to completely dismantle environmental regulation as it exists in the EPA? Does the environmental justice director of the EPA believe the only way to address cancer alley is to rebuild the EPA from scratch? Absolutely not. I think what he means by that is more that um, we need to kind of diagnose and untangle where current laws aren't working. Um, we definitely haven't heard from anyone at the EPA nor the advocates that we've talked to um, that something like the Clean Air Act, which to be clear, was a monumental piece of regulation, despite leaving you know, certain parts of um, our air pollution problems, uh, you, know, you could say untouched or underdetermined, um, you know, did, did so much to clean the air in the last 50 years, um, especially for these widespread pollutants. Um, no one wants to um, get rid of the Clean Air Act or even necessarily um, relitigate or reopen it. But there are, of course, gaps in the Clean Air Act, which is something um, we found and, and highlighted in this investigation. And um, I see, I, I, I took what Tejada was telling us um, is that, you know, there are, you know, decades of kind of policies and interpretation since um, with each successive EPA administration, um, you know, kind of changing its tunes and, and trimming various fat and um, uh, issuing kind of, you know, various uh, statements about how different things should be interpreted and those statements going through the court. Um, but the, that the new EPA in looking at, you know, how are we actually going to tackle hazardous air pollution uh, needs to uh, address, uh, in, in some cases might need to scuttle, and in others kind of uh, needs to enforce um, you know, more aggressively what's already on the books. But the EPA always claims a lack of funding, and their funding has been slashed. So to what degree is the lack of enforcement of the Clean Air Act driven by just the lack of resources to do anything about enforcing the Clean Air Act? Yeah, I think I think that's definitely one of the the major issues, right? Is that there's uh, often not enough money to even do what the EPA might 
want to do or try to do. And on the state level, right, it's not just the EPA, as we were saying, it's also um, state and local and tribal environmental agencies that are responsible and, and share and, you know, share the kind of effort of cleaning up the air. Uh, also, you know, massive drastic funding cuts. Um, in some places, there are just a handful <laughs> of regulators responsible for looking at hundreds of industrial facilities. Um, so it's, it's tricky on both a federal and state level. Absolutely. So uh, under federal, you write that under federal law, the EPA delegates the majority of its enforcement powers to state and local authorities, which means that the environmental protections afforded to Americans vary widely between states. Texas, which is home to some of the largest hotspots in the nation's nation, has notoriously lax regulations. So do we know what the impact would be on enforcement and public health if that authority was not granted to state and local authorities? Is this about it has to be the federal government or state and local authorities, or is this about all three of them not working together? Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. I'm not sure what enforcement would look like. I know that there's definitely not enough, you know, funding for enforcement to just happen from the EPA. Um, you know, they don't have enough people even working on um, clean air issues to be able to regulate the um, over, you know, twenty thousand, not a lot more industrial facilities uh, in the nation. Um, but it's certainly true that on a state level, um, and, and something the EPA has told us is that, you know, they need to work a lot closer with the states and to lean on the states when they feel like they are not necessarily doing their job, enforcing the laws and, uh, ensuring compliance. And so one of the commitments, um, we have on record from the Regan EPA under the Biden administration is that they plan to work much closely with their state partners. Uh, to look more closely at state enforcement activities and to ramp up enforcement um, in general uh, where they feel that may be lacking. As your investigation found, despite state budgets like in Texas increasing, environmental uh, protections are slashed and few resources are collected via fines and penalties committed by polluters. So do fines deter uh, deter, uh, polluters in Texas from polluting? And if not, What's the point? Is this all political theater at the expense of Texans getting cancer? Um, that's another good question. I think one of the issues with fines is that once you're slapped with a fine, and often these fines are, you know, uh, as in many industries, calculated um, and incorporated as part of the cost of doing business, it's already too late, right? When it comes to kind of protecting people immediately from pollution, What's really needed is to change the uh, permanent amounts of pollution that these facilities can release and to change um, how much pollution they release kind of you know, off the books outside of these permits, which is another whole issue um, that we don't even necessarily touch on in this story, uh, but definitely um, you know, leads us to believe that um, many of the cancer risks we found are are likely underestimates, uh, since facilities are also releasing a ton of pollution through startups and shutdowns and malfunctions. So to answer your question, um, you know, to continue to to give these companies kind of slap on the wrist fines um, and to issue civil enforcement, you know, may not be enough. Um, some some legal experts and environmental attorneys have called for criminal enforcement as well. And you also point out that some have considered approaching this as a civil rights issue. How might approaching this as a civil rights issue better protect the near people in nearby communities who have an increased likelihood of cancer due to chemical processing facilities emissions? 
Yeah, some 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 legal experts have suggested that you know to actually um, tackle this pollution head on and and get the reductions that would be needed to not just um, you know protect people's health with health within this kind of you know permit game, um, which may be you know completely inadequate when it comes to actually preventing uh, disparate and um, you know, frankly, outrageous health outcomes uh, like multiple cancers within within a family. What we really need to do is uh, look at these facilities uh, when they're concentrated, especially in low income and black neighborhoods um, and permitted this way as a civil rights violation. And that, you know, a suite of civil rights protections uh, needs to be kind of brought to bear in these places um, and permits themselves, you know, may need to be revoked or, or taken away. Um, we haven't really ever seen that that happen. That, that has very rarely happened in this country. Um, and so uh, in some ways that would that would be a kind of new step um, and a next step for for the EPA and other federal agencies to take. And you write that the people living inside these hot spots are disproportionately black is not a coincidence. Our findings build on decades of evidence dem- demonstrating that pollution is segregated. People of color are exposed to far greater levels of air pollution than whites, a pattern that persists across income levels. These disparities are rooted in racist real estate practices like redlining and the designation of low-income housing and communities of color as mixed residential industrial zones. In cities like Houston, for example, all white zoning boards targeted black neighborhoods for the siting of noxious facilities like landfills, incinerators, and garbage dumps. Robert Bullard, a professor of urban planning and environmental policy at Texas Southern University, has called the practice PIBI, or Place in Black's Backyards, a spin on the acronym NIMBY, not in my backyard. And I always thought the phrase not in my backyard meant in black people's backyards because it was always white people who were telling me this about a polluting place that was in a white neighborhood. So the placement of these pollution facilities is racially biased. So what would you say to someone who argues this isn't about race but class? This is about these facilities trying to get the cheapest land possible and the places where they could get maybe the most tax breaks. So this is all about the bottom line and not about race. How would you respond to somebody who makes that kind of statement? Well, each community is really different. And in some cases, that might absolutely be true. Um, you know, when you study these hotspots, um, you can have an environmental justice community that is based exclusively on, you know, the fact that uh, there are really valuable natural resources, right? There's there's coal in certain places, which is why coal mining takes place there. Um, but uh, it still doesn't take away from the fact that, you know, that's disproportionately harming, um, you know, in that case, you know, mostly low income um, white neighborhoods. Um, in other cases, uh, the facilities we see, uh, such as in Mossville, moved in after the people already lived there. Um, you know, in terms of the, you know, who came first question, um, there was this um, Black community and uh, it was overtaken by industry. Um, in other cases, sometimes people go and they do end up living uh, near some of these facilities because uh, the land is cheaper um, or because there's been, uh, you know, decades of racist uh, housing practices um, that have uh, forced them or shunted them into these less desirable neighborhoods. 
that, of course, um, you know, from an environmental justice perspective and, and just a kind of, uh, I think, you know, anyone's kind of common sense perspective doesn't make anyone um, more or less deserving of, of receiving the brunt of pollution uh, just because they moved there or the facilities chose to come to them. So either way, um, you know, this is definitely an issue uh, across all communities that needs to be addressed, uh, despite the, you know, historical circumstances and particularities uh, that might have uh, given rise to uh, these overburdened places. And you write Wayne Davis, the former EPA scientist who managed the role or the modeling program that you use in your analysis under the Trump administration. He said that some of his supervisors were hesitant about publishing information that would directly implicate a facility. You then quote Davis saying, they always told us, don't make a big deal of it, don't market it, and hopefully you'll continue to get funding next year. They didn't want to make anything public that would raise questions about why the EPA hadn't done anything to regulate that facility. So don't bring up that you've discovered how facilities are contributing to an increased likelihood of cancer in nearby communities because we'll look bad. The public will recognize we do not enforce our regulations. And if we do commit to enforcement, we'll no longer be funded because that implies that the only reason the EPA is allowed to exist is because it does not enforce its rules or hold polluters accountable. Is that the case? That's definitely the impression that some employees have had in the agency over the years. And it's, um, you know, one of those agencies, uh, I guess, like many federal agencies that has seen its kind of, you know, fortunes and ability to uh, act in the world um, severely limited or curtailed depending on the political administration and power. Of course, we saw this most recently, the last four years of the Trump administration, uh, all but dismantling um, many parts of the EPA. And you also mentioned our analysis arrives as America faces new threats to its air quality. The downstream effects of climate change, like warmer temperatures and massive wildfires, have created more smoke and smog. Climate change causes pollution. How often is that overlooked? And what impact can fighting pollution have on fighting climate change? I think it can have a huge impact. Um, obviously, um, many of these issues are interrelated. Um, in some cases, uh, you know, the same facilities that are releasing uh, hazardous air pollutants like uh, hexavalent chromium or benzene are also contributing um, in a major way to greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, one of the things that was most striking to me uh, visiting these neighborhoods and following the administrator on his tour is that you see so directly the ways in which climate justice and environmental justice are linked together um, as issues. Uh, the same people who live in these neighborhoods uh, that are just absolutely decimated by the emissions from the refinery uh, next door or down the street or the 10 refineries in their neighborhoods uh, are also often being hit hardest by uh, the increasing intensity of, of storms and freak weather events and hurricanes um, and flooding in the area. And when you visit a place like Lake Charles, Louisiana, um, it's not just the fact that the residents are breathing in um, this horrible air from industries, it's also that those same industries are leading to these weather events that have also destroyed their homes and their economic security as well. <laughs> 
You also write about Sullivan Ramirez, who knows that the new administration has promised something more for communities like hers. But she doesn't want to get her hopes up. The presentations from captains of industry, the listening sessions with earnest bureaucrats, the proposals from slick attorneys, the promises tossed off by politicians over the years. She's heard it all. The people of Mossville, the area you were discussing earlier, are right to be skeptical. The EPA's Tejada acknowledged. You quote Tejada saying... I would be skeptical if I was from Mossville. They should be skeptical until we actually show up and do the things that they've been asking us to do for a long time. But there's now a level of commitment to actually tangling with these issues in a really serious, substantive way. Did it surprise you that Tejada was so forthcoming? What explains this willingness to be so critical of the agency where he works? Are we really going to see massive changes in the EPA, or is this all just public relations in light of your investigation? I, uh, yeah, can actually absolutely speak for myself and my colleagues in saying that um, we were really surprised by his uh, candor and openness and by the agency's openness and willingness to engage with these findings. Um, you know, I I don't, I don't know, um, what will happen um, down the line, but I do know that what we've heard so far um, is exactly this messaging that the EPA does want to tackle these issues and um, is committed to looking at them in a serious way. And what struck me about hearing uh, the administrator speak uh, just a few weeks back um, on this listening tour he went on through the South um, that you mentioned uh, earlier at the top of the show is that he even went out of his way to say, look, I. I know that I'm I'm saying all these things. I know that I'm kind of setting these promises and these expectations really high. Um, and you know, some people would say to me, "Well, you're putting yourself out there, and that means you have to move the ball forward, and you will be held accountable." And you know, I'm fully aware that we're going to be held accountable for for making these um, these statements, um, for saying that you know we do want to be better. Um, we do understand why these communities uh, distrust and might be skeptical of our efforts in the past. And uh, we want to make changes in these areas. And that's what we're in public service for. So, um, you know, I think right now we're at a wait and see moment where expectations for the new EPA are, are incredibly high and, and they've set them there. And uh, we'll have to see if, if they commit to those and, and do right by the communities of, you know, of Mossville and of Cancer Alley and of Houston. To, to You write that too, uh, Sullivan Ramirez, Mossville is the key, a warning of what the future holds for America's other hot spots if business continues as usual. And you quote Ramirez saying, this is the 21st century, the act of polluting our lands and robbing our communities. When will enough be enough? Could what's happening in Cancer Alley be a canary in the coal mine for all of us, or is it a canary in the coal mine only for areas that have cheap land, are political, politically underrepresented, and disproportionately poor and African-American? I don't necessarily think it's a, it's a canary in a coal mine for, for the entire country because, you know, obviously industrial development is, you know, uneven for, for many of the reasons that you listed, as well as the fact that, um, you know, the actual natural resources, um, you know, such as oil, I mean, there's, there's a reason that the Gulf, Coy, the Gulf Coast is that, you know, petrochemical capital of the United States, um, you know, that's where the oil is. So I don't think we're about to see necessarily, um, you know, the same kind of intensive industrial activity off the coast of New York, uh, unless we, <laughs> uh, you know, I guess struck uh, struck oil there. But I do think it is a canary in the coal mine in terms of the fact that you know without um, without greater 
enforcement, um, we will see more and more of these communities, these so-called you know, sacrifice zones that have been sacrificed uh, to the needs of both American consumers and industrial development um, be further hollowed out, um, be further sickened, and uh, you know, be further kind of destroyed as communities as we've seen in Mossville. In the follow-up to your original article, you and your co-authors write of the speaking tour that Regan went on. The administrator's caravan chartered a penitent itinerary along the Gulf Coast, calling on communities of color that the EPA has historically failed to protect. On front porches and in churches, Regan listened to residents share stories about how government officials had ignored their concerns for decades. Many of the people he met had lost family members to cancers that they linked to the dangerous chemicals in the air. You then quote Regan telling an audience in Houston, it's just not credible in this day and time to pretend that industry hasn't taken many communities hostage and surrounded some communities. What do you think has changed that would lead Regan to say it's just not credible in this day and time? After all, these are there are those who oppose environmental regulation of any kind and are skeptical about the Im- impact of emissions on public health. And those anti-regulation politicians get a lot of votes in places like Texas. So what do you think has changed that would lead Regan to say it's just not credible in this day and time to make this kind of uh, to deny this kind of impact that industry has on communities? I think there's been a lot of um, public activism and attention to these issues uh, over the years and over the decades. And so, um, you know, in in some ways, his statements can be seen as a uh, testament to the to the work that people on the ground have been doing for years to make these problems visible and to be believed. I think the other thing that's changed in time is that, you know, over the decades, as people um, like Regan and his predecessors have, you know, kind of come through these areas, um, as advocates have been working, you know, nearly their whole life, um, you know, starting, you know, seeing their parents get sick when they were in their 30s or 40s. And, um, you know, some of the environmental justice advocates in places like Cancer Alley are in their 70s. Um, what we've seen is that things have just gotten worse for the most part in a lot of these places. And so what's changed in time is that people in Cancer Alley have gotten a lot sicker. Um, families have you know, gone from 12 members to having five and places that used to be thriving communities with homes and, and schools and dry cleaners and shops and all kinds of things as you know, was pointed out in this bus tour I went on in Mossville, um, there might be one, one home left on the road. So uh, I think all of that, um, you know, when you're breathing in the fumes and standing in starkly on the ground like that uh, makes it very, very hard to deny the impact of industry. Um, Of course, uh, you know, the health effects in some cases can be much harder to prove as we've been discussing, but the overall impact of industry um, on these communities is, is very palpable and very tangible to anyone who visits these areas. And you just a few more questions for you, Ava. You write in response to ProPublica's questions about the immediate next steps the agency plans to take to protect overburdened communities. Regan pledged to ramp up the agency's enforcement activities. You quote him saying, when we see these disparate impacts occurring, we have to put in more monitoring and we have to increase our inspections. When we see companies cut or out of compliance, we have to increase our enforcement. This is not just a feeling or something that we're sensing. The data is there. But to me, that sounds a lot like they're going to continue overseeing individual facilities without considering cumulative effects. Do you think that is the case, that nothing's going to change when it comes to individual instead of cumulative enforcement? 
I'm not sure. I mean, we asked them directly about looking at cumulative risk and um, they, they did say, and we've included this in the article, that they definitely plan to address and tackle that as well as just kind of reevaluate their policies in general. So I think it's too early to say one way or another um, whether or not they'll they'll follow through on that, or or whether the agency will kind of you know maintain the policies that have been on the books for years and uh, made such risks you know really invisible to regulators and residents. Certainly, one of the things that you know uh, our detailed analysis, uh, which took. Um, you know, many, many months of kind of painstaking work to produce is is to make these these hotspots um, visible and is to show this risk in a way that the agency hasn't yet acknowledged. So whether or not they'll act on that um, is, you know, I don't have the crystal ball yet, but um, they have signaled a strong commitment to looking at it. And uh, it's the information is, you know, now daylighted and out there in a way that maybe it hadn't been before. For sure. Maybe, uh, maybe certainly hasn't been before. Yeah. Maybe, maybe you'll get a uh, crystal ball for the holidays. Who knows? You write that the EPA and state agencies could install air monitors in communities to gauge how much toxic pollution reaches neighborhoods, but there's no federal requirement to do that. ProPublica, in an unprecedented analysis of modeled EPA emissions data, identified more than 1,000 hotspots of toxic air pollution nationwide. Yet the EPA spends only $5 million per year to run 26 monitoring stations across the country. It offered another $5 million last year for state and local air monitoring grants and will use $25 million from President Joe Biden's coronavirus stimulus package to help communities monitor for air pollutants of interest, including air toxics. Now, all that sounds great, but am I wrong or does that sound like there isn't much monitoring now? And while there will be more in the future, that's not that much more and it still will not be enough. There's definitely a need for far more air monitoring than there already is. Um, yeah, I think I think that's absolutely true. Um, and it'll be really interesting to see whether or not um, in the next you know four years under this administration, next three years, I suppose, um, that monitoring ramps up or if it if, or if it kind of continues to be a, a patchwork um, and underfunded system. You also write that when ProPublica asked about whether the EPA plans to consider cumulative risk, Regan said that the EPA intends to be very creative and entrepreneurial to address the issue, included, including by working with Congress to clarify its legal authority. Do you have any idea what he meant by entrepreneurial? My understanding is that the agency doesn't necessarily know, I think I was kind of touching on this earlier in our chat, whether or not it has the authority to address cumulative risk. And so uh, it might need to do so in a way where it's kind of leaning on Congress uh, to expand that authority. Uh, environmental advocates have said that the agency, you know, already has all of the authority it needs and doesn't need to be, you know, creative um, or, uh, you know, crafty or innovative in order to look at cumulative risk uh, right here and right now. Um, but that does seem to be a kind of open debate and so we're waiting to see how that will play out. One last question for you, Ava. We have been speaking with Ava Kaufman, co-author of Poison in the Air. The EPA allows polluters to turn neighborhoods into sacrifice zones where residents breathe carcinogens, which was published at ProPublica. You can uh, find out more about Ava at her website, avakaufman.tumblr.com, and you can follow Ava on Twitter at Ava Kaufman, A-V-A-K-O-F. M-A-N. One last question for you, and as we do with all of our guests, I promise our final question is what we call 
the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response on November 29th. There was yet another follow-up posted, headlined, they knew industrial pollution was ruining the neighborhood's air if only regulators had listened. This is about a situation that's going on in Pascagoula, Mississippi, and you write, neither industrial polluters nor the regulators who govern them know exactly how much hazardous air pollution is billowing out of smokestacks at any given time, nor the degree to which that pollution is finding its way into surrounding neighborhoods. The law doesn't require them to. What does it reveal to you about the law and our sense of justice in the United States when it is legal to not be monitored to determine if you are causing cancer and then causing cancer? What does that say to you about the state of environmental law today? I was absolutely described like, you know, surprised to find that out um, when I started working on the story earlier this year. Um, it was uh, shocking to me uh, to discover how little we actually know about what we're breathing in and how even what we do know is often produced, um, you know, is often generated by data that uh, industrial facilities are submitting, often without kind of any oversight to the federal government. And uh, that when we do try to kind of monitor or get better data, um, those efforts are often uh, opposed. Um, sometimes those tests are often, you know, the tests are often done on days in which the facility is releasing, releasing fewer emissions um, and that they're very hard to get and perform on a regular basis. Uh, it might have, you know, been a product of my own naivete, but I had expected that in this day and age, um, you know, both both the science and the funding had advanced far enough that we would have a better sense of what's in the air. And I think what our reporting has um, really uh, revealed, I hope, to people is that um, in many cases, uh, we don't. And so, you know, this is this is one of the first times we're able to show, um, at the very least, you know, the best estimates based on the best available data that's out there that people might be breathing in from industrial facilities. And at the same time, even that's an underestimate. And so that 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 to me was um, really surprising. Ava, thank you so much for being on our show today. This is a fascinating investigation. Again, Ava Kaufman, co-author of Poison in the Air. You can find it at ProPublica. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Thanks so much for having me. You are listening to, it sounds like a smoke alarm and a, a police alarm. There's some sort of police alarm in the background. I hope Ava's okay. You are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Me Wrong, This Is Hell. Hey, is that coming from the bar downstairs? I believe it is. I believe our alarm is going off. Well, we'll get Alex back in here. Alex? Yeah, yeah it looks like he's running around. Alex, what's happening with the alarm? Is it the downstairs bar? Is the alarm going? Hey, up? there's an alarm coming out of a box that I've never seen before. Where is it? Uh, right outside the door. Outside your door? Uh, no, outside your door. Oh, let me uh, go Did check. we say goodbye to Ava? <laughs> Sorry, I was yeah, running. Yeah, yeah, we did. Hold one second. I'll get to this, and then we can do our close. Yeah, everyone, uh, give us <laughs> one second to figure out why an alarm is going off. Well, that was pretty exciting. Uh... Alex, the police may be arriving very shortly. So what do you say we wrap up the show? Somehow, the alarm went off in the bar downstairs. And when I went down there, the front door was open. Oh. So (laughs) that can't be good. And after getting into the bar, turning off the alarm, 
and then exiting the bar, I realized, you know, there could have been somebody in the bar who was robbing the bar. Something I didn't cross my mind, but it probably should have. You are listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove me wrong. This is hell of what you just heard from Avon Cancer Alley and why the EPA has allowed them to persist. That made you in some way enlightened deprogramming yourself from a previously held belief or understanding, or made you feel like you actually learned something or realized that, yes, this really is hell, show your support by either becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Friday Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell, or go to thisishell.com, click on support, see all the ways you can com- you can support completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks for your support. Alex, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are Responding so far while I catch my breath. Uh, this week's question from Hill is, what did the Oracle just reveal to you? What did the Oracle just reveal to you? Jeremy T. says, the people prefer to believe things that reinforce their delusions. Ah, crap. This was supposed to be funny and clever, right? Damn it. Peter K. says, Beatles Abbey Road epic was faked, like the moon landing. <laughs> Novak W. says, she wants to sue Oracle for not being an Oracle, and I'm convinced her cause is just. What did the Oracle reveal to you? Aaron B. says his butthole. (laughs) Chris H. says, Dunno was being pretty Delphic. Fabio L. says, your mom. What did the Oracle reveal to you? Sloan L. says, whoever smelt it, dealt it. Dan K. says, her fear of commitment. Jessica B. says, indecent exposure. What did the Oracle reveal to you? David I. says, the traumatizing pain of always knowing the future. And finally, Aaron D. says, that the Magic 8 Ball was right all along. We will have more of your answers at the end of tomorrow's show. Again, the question from hell is, what did the Oracle just reveal to you? What did the the Oracle just reveal to you? Aside from the combination to make sure that the burglar alarm won't go off anymore. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell gets your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want that is currently available at thisishell.com. When you click on support, it's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, Goopy, gloppy, globby, gory this week in Rotten History. In Rotten History on December 6th, 1907, 114 years ago yesterday, Monday, at least 367 coal miners were killed after a mid-morning explosion ripped through the underground tunnels of the number six and eight mines of the Fairmont Coal Company in Monanga, West Virginia. Nothing quite says rotten history like a coal mine explosion. Most of the miners were killed in the immediate blast, but many more died from inhaling poisonous gas, which remained in the tunnels because the blast had collapsed and blocked the passageway to the surface and destroyed the ventilation machinery that kept air in the mine breathable. In other words, the worst thing that could happen in a coal mine explosion. The poison gas also severely hampered rescue efforts because no special breathing apparatus was available. So it even got worse than the worst thing that can happen. The exact cause of the explosion was never determined, but was probably due to underground methane or coal dust being ignited by an electric spark, or maybe a miner's portable gas lamp, or maybe it was our dependence on coal as a source for heat and fuel. Maybe that was it. The exact number of victims is also uncertain, since it was common for employees of the mining company, many of whom were recent immigrants, to bring family members down into the tunnels to help in the work. In other words, free labor! 
The Menanga disaster is viewed as the worst of its kind in U.S. history. It occurred a year in a year when more than 3,000 people were killed in mining accidents nationwide. But just because thousands were dying in coal mines didn't mean the U.S. was going to stop mining coal or that coal companies were suddenly going to make coal mining more safe. I mean, those kinds of efforts would be cost prohibitive. And the cost that was definitely not prohibitive, prohibitive was the cost in human lives. In Rotten History, December 10th, 1981, 40 years ago this Friday, in the midst of El Salvador's 12-year civil war, a military death squad known as the Altacati Battalion arrived in the remote northeastern village of El Mazote, which had established a reputation for neutrality in the conflict. The government soldiers had trained at the infamous School of the Americas in Fort Benning, Georgia, and were now being sent by El Salvador's U.S.-backed right-wing junta to stamp out insurgents of the FMLN, a coalition of leftist organizations that opposed the dictatorship. The residents of El Mazote <clears throat> were already known for their predominantly evangelical Protestant rather than Catholic, and were so little attracted to socialist ideas or liberation theology that the FMLN had largely given up trying to recruit them into their cause. So a neutral area occupied by those who are not interested in supporting the opposition, they should have no need to worry about a brutal death squad dropping by, right? Nonetheless, the government troops went from door to door in the village, pulling people out of their homes, beating them, and taking their valuables before letting them go back home. Oh yeah, if you're a brutal death squad and have been trained to be brutal, you're probably brutal to anybody. It doesn't really matter who they are. It's kind of what you're trained to do. So thanks to the United States for training El Salvadoran militias in brutality. But, I mean, all they did was just take their stuff and leave, so it's not so bad, right? On the following day, December 11th, 40 years ago, this Saturday, the soldiers forced the local residents outside again. Uh-oh. This time separating the men and boys from the women and girls. Then they began killing them. Before being shot dead or decapitated, many of the men and boys were blindfolded and then tortured with clubs, knives, electric shocks, and corrosive acid. And you got to wonder how much of that they learned at Fort Benning, which has been rebranded, but it's still... The School of the Americas, don't kid yourself. The women and girls were raped before being murdered. The youngest children and babies in the village were also rounded up and killed. Finally, just for good measure, the soldiers went around killing all the pets and farm animals they could find. In what became known as the El Mazote Massacre, almost a thousand people were slaughtered, nearly half of them under the age of 10. Keep in mind, this was a neutral area that did not support the opposition, but the killers left one survivor. 38-year-old woman named Rufina Amaya, who avoided capture by hiding among some trees and bushes. Her eyewitness testimony was later challenged by the Salvadoran and U.S. governments, of course, Jesus, who both claimed that the carnage had resulted from a battle between two armed groups. But a United Nations Truth Commission found no evidence of that claim and concluded that it had been a simple case of mass murder. Rufina Amaya died of a stroke in 2007. And when you hear or read the words out loud, simple case of mass murder, you know that's rotten history and this is hell. Alex, do we have anybody to be scheduled, scheduled to be on tomorrow's show? Yeah, we're talking with journalist Tony Briscoe about his ProPublica piece, Conservationists See Rare Nature Sanctuaries, Black Farmers See a Legacy Bought Out from Under Them. It's a really difficult story because... 
while you want to be for nature conservation, you also don't want to be for the privatization of nature conversation, na- nature con- conservation, and you're going to find out all about that on tomorrow's show. What about on Thursday's show? Uh, F5N. Yeah, still working on it. And any police at the door yet? Uh, no, not yet. Oh, that's a good sign. I hope uh, Officer Murphy comes. She's... Uh, I like her. We are looking for new board operators to join our staff here on This Is Hell. If you are interested in running the board, as Richard and Alex do, and as Sebastian Whooper will be doing beginning in January of 2022, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. If you'd like to join us here on This Is Hell, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. We are looking for people who can run the board anywhere from once a week here at our studio above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. It's the bar that have the police up front with shows beginning at 10 a.m. Monday through Wednesday. However, we are very flexible, and if you can only do it a couple of times a month, we can work with your schedule. This is your opportunity to have access to a professional studio for your own projects as well. So if you're doing some any kind of sound project, if you want to do your own podcast, you're mixing your own music, whatever you want to do, you can have access to these studios as well. And we actually pay our board ops a living wage. I know, crazy, right? If you are interested in becoming a board operator here on This Is Hell, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. Of course, with this position, you need to live in the Chicago area. In fact, we got an email last night from Matthew who writes, Hey Chuck, hope all is well. I love the show. Heard on the last one you are looking for soundboard operators. I'd be interested in helping out if you still need it. Best Matthew. And Matthew, we do still need your or anyone's help as we are still seeking board operators for the show as Jess has moved on to greener pastures. Again, if you'd like to be a board op here on This Is Hell, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. Thanks to our guest today, Ava Kaufman, co-author of Poison in the Air. The EPA allows polluters to turn neighborhoods into sacrifice zones where residents breathe carcinogens. Thanks to Alex for running the board today and producing this week's shows. And thanks to Ronaldo for Rotten History. And this week's Hangover Cure is the ultimate Hangover Cure, a fish finger sandwich. Who knew fish had fingers? We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.